Good morning, everybody. Friends, it is uh, good to be here, and it's good to give our attention to the Word of God this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, you're already open to 1 Corinthians, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 now. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Today we are moving into the next section of this epistle. Now we have already considered how, by God's grace, we are a called church in a divided world world. That was what we saw in chapters 1 to 4. And then we saw how we are a called church in an impure world. That was primarily in chapters 5 to 7. And now, as we move into chapter 8 in this next section, we are going to consider how we are a called church in a, in a selfish, self-centered, self-serving world. And today, uh, we're going to consider how, how true knowledge of the living God leads us as His people to sacrifice for and to serve those within the church, even those who are very different than we are, even those who have many different convictions than we might. And so let's begin this morning by reading the entirety of this chapter together, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning, even through this weak and frail preacher. Now, concerning food offered to idols, I am pretty sure that none of our conversations from this past week started with those words. Food offered to idols is not something that most of us have given time or thought to this past week. This feels like a foreign topic to us. What relevance does it have in our lives? 
Friend, you may be indifferent to whether the food you eat today is offered to an idol or not. But let's edit the text a little bit and add in a few different categories. What if 1 Corinthians read like this? What if 1 Corinthians 8 verse 8 says, Wearing a mask will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do wear a mask and no better off if we don't. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to wear or to not wear a mask? Therefore, if masks make my brother stumble, I will never wear or not wear a mask lest I make my brother stumble. Or what if it said, homeschooling will not commend us to God? We are no worse off if we do homeschool and no better off if we do not. But take care that this right of yours to either homeschool or not does not somehow become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Or or what if it said, whether you are Democrat or Republican will not commend you to God. We are no worse off if we are Republican or Democrat and no better off if we are not one of those things. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to those who are weak. These topics have a little bit more relevance in our lives, don't they, than just food being offered to idols. And so we can imagine Paul beginning this next section of this letter by saying, now concerning the wearing of masks during a pandemic, or concerning how to handle your convictions about schooling options, or any number of other hot topic issues in our day. What Paul is doing here in chapter 8 is he is starting a conversation about how to love others within the local church. Paul knows that we are a very different people. He knows that there is a lot of variety within the body of Christ, a lot of different ways that we seek to live out the Christian life. And Paul does not ever argue for unanimity between everybody. He doesn't say we're supposed to be exactly the same. That that's not how we're supposed to, we're always supposed to be exactly the same, that, that, that in areas that are not clearly articulated in God's word, that we don't have freedom to be different from each other. Our burden, Paul says, is to love those who are different from us, and how we love others will reveal whether we truly know and love God himself. Friends, the main idea for this morning is this. Love for God reveals that you are known by God and should result in greater love for God's people. Love for God reveals that you are known by God and should result in greater love for God's people. And again, we have our three points this morning, and they all have to do with knowledge, which is very much the center of this chapter. Point number one is empty knowledge. Point number two is true knowledge. Point number three is loving knowledge. Let's begin with empty knowledge. Verse 1 begins with the central issue that Paul is, is using in order to discuss this need for greater love for others within the church. The, the, the issue, the, the topic that he uses to discuss this is the topic of whether to eat food which had been offered to an idol within one of the pagan temples in the city of Corinth. And friends, this was a really big deal. 
In the city of Corinth, there were many pagan temples, many different religions, many cult practices. In fact, lots of social events would happen even within these pagan temples. And so Christians needed to decide after coming to Christ whether they would go to a social event in one of those places or not and whether they would eat what was offered to them there. Another issue was that much of the meat from the animals that were sacrificed in these pagan temples to these false gods, much of the meat was then sold in the marketplace to anyone for daily consumption. So the cultural question of the time was was whether Christians who celebrated the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning as a sign of their allegiance to King Jesus, whether they could also go to a social gathering where there was a meal that had been offered to an idol and whether Christians could buy meat in the marketplace for their household, which had previously been offered to an idol. And and this issue was, was so intense within this local church because Christians within the church at Corinth had once been pagans themselves, and they had been saved out of false religion and cult worship. And they would have been very sensitive to any further connection to those pagan Temples, these new Christians, their, their conscience, you, your conscience is God's gift to you to be sensitive to his word to determine what is right and wrong for your life. Their, their consciences as new Christians would have not made them comfortable to eat this meat or to participate in these events. But the issue was that not everyone had the same perspective or the same knowledge about these things. And so if a newer Christian felt uncomfortable eating food that had been offered to an idol, there were then older or maybe more mature Christians who were very comfortable eating the food offered to an idol. They claimed that their knowledge, their understanding of the gospel and that it was God who had created all food anyways and that because these idols were not real gods anyways, it didn't really matter. Let's partake of what's put in front of us. Paul will actually correct both sides of this, this discussion to some degree. He, he certainly doesn't want to, he, he certainly wants to give those with a weaker conscience better categories to think through. And we'll, we'll see that in this text. But he also wants to warn those who claim to have all kinds of freedom to take heed lest they carelessly fall into sin. And we're going to see that in chapter 10. And he wants to charge them to be more loving to those who are not in the same place as them. But the issue as we begin this this new section is the issue of their knowledge or their empty knowledge or knowledge that puffs up. As we have already seen throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, there there are lots of Christians in the Corinthian church who believe that they had a a special knowledge given them by God, a a hyper-spirituality, that their consciences consciences were free to enjoy whatever they wanted. The the focus of this section is is certainly on those who, who claim to be more mature and to have more knowledge and seem to be careless in how they handle that knowledge. Paul says this, he says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul is acknowledging that their claim to knowledge is central to the issue at hand. These Christians love to be seen as smart. They love to know lots of things. And so Paul acknowledges, yeah, we all possess knowledge. But then he says, 
this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Friends, here we have the very center of what Paul is going to be saying over the next several chapters. All that he's going to say about food being offered to idols here in chapter 8. All that he's going to say about surrendering his rights for the sake of others in chapter 9. All that he's going to say about how dangerous idolatry truly is in the Christian's life in chapter 10. All of that could be summarized with these words here in chapter 8 verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul's making it very, very clear that it is possible, Christian, to know many things, even many biblical things, even many right things. It is possible to have a lot of knowledge, even about God and the gospel, but if you do not possess that knowledge with love in the right way, then it is empty. But Paul says that knowledge alone is what puffs us up. And Paul Paul loves those words puffed up. He, he uses it throughout the whole book. He, he also uses the word arrogant. We see these words in chapter 4, in chapter 5, here in chapter 8. We're going to see it again in the love chapter in chapter 13 when he says that love is not puffed up or love is not arrogant. One of Paul's main concerns for the Corinthian church and for us is that we become puffed up in our theological positions. They were acting like they had all the knowledge in the world. They claimed to be wise beyond their years. They claimed to have the right perspective on all things. They were puffed up, but it wasn't real knowledge. It makes me think of when I'm traveling with my family on a road trip and we go through a tunnel. I don't know what you guys do when you go through a tunnel, but our family holds our breath to see if we can last the whole time. And so as we get in, everybody takes the, and we all puff up. We're all ready to to last the whole time. We think we're going to endure through the time, through the tunnel. But inevitably, as I look in the rearview mirror, we all begin to deflate. And usually it's because I slow down to about 10 miles an hour to see if they can really make it or not. But we never make it. We, we, we went in confident, but it wasn't really who we were. Or maybe it's like the guy who takes a little bit of creatine as he goes to the gym, and he, he works on arm day or chest day, and he drinks lots of water, and then he gets all swole, and he stares at the mirror. He's like, man, I'm like, I'm like Arnold. I, this is who I am. And then he drives home 15 minutes later, and all of his muscles deflate, and he realizes, oh, he's still just who he is. Those are close to what Paul's talking about when he talks about the Corinthians and their knowledge that puffs up. They thought of themselves too highly. They had knowledge, but their knowledge did not lead to true love. Their knowledge led to pride. It was empty knowledge. Oh, church, isn't this true of all of us at times as well? Don't we all have our pet theologies, our our areas of conviction that we love to push on other people? our political perspectives that we expect everyone else to agree with and we judge those who do not agree with us. It's what we all do. But look at the contrast that Paul makes. He says at the end of verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 
Listen, as much as Paul loves to use the words puffed up to bring correction to the Corinthians, he also equally loves to use the words to build up in order to envision the Corinthian church. Our knowledge, he says, is not meant to make us feel better about ourselves. No, Christian, whatever knowledge we have, it's from God, and its entire purpose is to make us more loving towards his people. Our knowledge is supposed to be a tool that God uses to to build up the local church church, to grow his people, and even to reach those outside of the church. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul's so direct with us. He says, if you think that you have knowledge about important things, but you are not loving, your knowledge is just a figment of your imagination. It's not real. It's just make-believe. Church, listen, if you memorize the entire Bible but fail to love other people, if you have a biblical worldview that instructs you that human dignity is important and that caring for the poor is important and that ethnic harmony is important and that defending the unborn is important and that not watching certain movies is important, if you say all of those things while claiming to love Jesus who knows all things and who is omniscient and though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, if you know that gospel, but you do not have love accompanying those convictions, then you are nothing more than a mirage of knowledge. It is an imaginatory thing. It's not real. Real knowledge leads to love. And sometimes love is found in those convictions, but how we carry those convictions out matters. Real knowledge leads to caring for those around us, not just standing over and self-righteously judging those around us. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's not that knowledge is unimportant. We should all seek to be knowledgeable, particularly about the things of God. God is a God of truth, and he says what is right and wrong in this world. But if our knowledge, if in our knowledge we do not acknowledge who he is and what he calls us to, then it is an empty knowledge. Friends, we need to learn this together within the church today. You might have the right perspective on social justice issues. You might have knowledge about theology, You might have social knowledge about how to fit in in a better way within the church, but if you do not have love, then there will be no true justice in your social justice. There will be no God in your theology. There will be nothing acceptable about your social acceptability. There will be nothing about you that will truly be commendable before the Lord. Even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you will be nothing more than a clanging gong and a loud cymbal. You'll not be a part of the glorious work that God is doing in building up his church. You will actually be tearing it down. It is all empty knowledge if we do not have love. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two, true knowledge. So we see the words to know and to have knowledge. We see, see them 11 times in these 13 Verses. That's a lot. This chapter is clearly about how we as Christians have and how we use our knowledge within the church. But, but very interestingly, in verse 3, we see Paul talk not about our knowledge, 
but about God's knowledge. It's, it's the only point in the chapter that the knowledge referred to is not ours, but God's. And listen, this knowledge of God about us becomes the very foundation for all of our knowledge about every other thing. Look at verse 3. Paul says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul is saying that true knowledge leads to love. And that love begins with love for God. And that love for God is only possible when God has first known us. And when Paul and and other authors in the scriptures speak of God knowing us, it often means that he has elected us or called his people to himself. And so, for example, in Psalm chapter 1, when it says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the psalmist is not just speaking of a, of a generic knowledge or a generic awareness of who we are. No, it's speaking of intimate, covenantal knowledge, even predestining knowledge that he has given, which is also what we have seen in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says that we are actually called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That we wouldn't even know Jesus, we wouldn't even be in fellowship with Jesus if God did not first call us out of sin and death. If he did not first know us. Church, we love him because we were first known and loved by him. And therefore, whatever knowledge we have Whatever convictions we hold, they must be held in humility and love because they're not of us. It's a gift to us. It's not from our own knowledge, but of God's knowledge and love of us. Paul orients us away from ourselves and back to God. And we can see where that leads us. Look at verse 4 now. He says, therefore, because of this, As to the eating of food offered to idols, so he's getting back to the main point, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Paul says that being known by God is the foundational principle for how we think about the existence of idols and how we relate to them in this world. Look at what he says, what he goes on to say. He says, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says, if you love God, that is because you are known by God. And if you are known by the living God, that therefore leads you to see the emptiness and the futility of all other gods in this world. Paul says, sure, sure, there there, there are many so-called gods and so-called lords throughout this world. Many people claim to be powerful. There are many spiritual and political powers to consider. Yet for us, he says, church, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul says that being known, being called, being saved by God changes our view of all other powers in this world. They are nothing for us compared to our God. He references Isaiah chapter 41 when Isaiah says that 
these idols have no real existence at all. They're fake. They're empty. They're just pieces of wood. And then he references Deuteronomy as well, and he grounds us in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 35 says, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other God beside him. Listen to these words. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice. And then he also references the great Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. This would have been recited by the Jewish people over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul affirms the greatest reality in our lives. There is only one true God, and this one God has enabled us to see that there are no other gods besides him, and that this one God who exists in three persons sent his son Jesus into this world to redeem all things back to himself. This is true knowledge. This is where all other knowledge flows from. God and the gospel through his son Jesus Christ, they're the greatest realities in our lives and they put to shame all other idols, all other false gods that we might be fearful of in our day. Paul says that we know that an idol has no real existence. Church, I want that to speak comfort to you today. I want this to speak comfort and courage and boldness into our church family because as Christians we can live in fear a lot we can live in fear about the schemes of the devil we can live in fear about our culture we can live in fear about the state of this world and how bad our culture is going to be we we fear for ourselves we fear for our children and their future we fear for the state of the church everything going on in the world today can make us want to run away and hide in a hole but friends we do not need to be fearful Though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, even as there are many kings and many rulers and evil people in power, yet for us, church, there is one God the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And this one God has reconciled us back to himself and we are one with him. This knowledge of God changes everything. It gives us peace. It gives us courage in this world, and it should lead towards freedom from fear. And it should lead us towards love and humility towards other people. Because think about how far gone you were in your own ideas of knowledge. Think about how arrogantly you thought that you had this world figured out on your own. Think about how confident you were in your own ideas of what was right and wrong. But listen, God saved you from that foolishness, didn't he? God called you out. God knows you now, even when you were his enemy. Enemies in thought, enemies in ideologies, enemies in empty worldviews, enemies in our actions and lifestyles. Even when we were his enemies, because of his gracious love and his effective call on our life, we are now known by God and in relationship to him. That should lead us towards courage and, in the context of this chapter, that should lead us towards great humility and greater love for other people. And that brings us to our third and to our final point, point number three, loving knowledge. Empty knowledge, 
true knowledge, and the result is loving knowledge. Follow the flow of Paul's argument with me. Verses 1 and 2, he says that all of us possess knowledge, but that without love, this knowledge puffs up. It's, it's empty. It's not useful. Without love, our knowledge, our knowledge does more damage rather than good for God's people. In, in verses 3 to 6, he says what true knowledge is. He says that there is only one God, and therefore idols have no real existence in this world. They're empty. They're dead. They don't have any power. And by his grace, we know and are known by him. And so it might seem like Paul is leaning on the side of those in the church who are arguing boldly for freedom to do what they want to do. It might seem like he is saying, yeah, idols are not a big deal. They're not real. They're fake. So don't, so don't be concerned about them. It's, it's fine to eat food offered to an idol because we know that there's really only one true God. I mean, if you look at verse 8, he explicitly says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So in some sense, he's agreeing with those who have this sense of knowledge. That's a very direct statement. He wants it to be known. Whether we eat or whether we do not eat, it's not a matter of greater sin or greater righteousness before God. Basically, he's saying a piece of steak is a piece of steak. If it's offered to an idol, you as a Christian, as long as you don't worship that idol, can still eat that piece of steak. So it might seem like Paul is, is getting ready to defend those who claim to have this knowledge and perspective, but that's actually not what he does. In verse 7, he shifts gears a little bit and he says, however, however, not all possess this knowledge. And he's not speaking of those who do not possess knowledge of God, the one true God, because he goes on to describe them as brothers for whom Christ died. But rather, he's speaking about those who do not possess this knowledge that idols are of no real importance, of those who do not possess the same confidence in their knowledge about the one true God. He says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some within the church through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, their sense of what is right or wrong, being weak, is defiled. He's saying that there are people within the church who, because of their history in pagan temples, they know God, they, they love the Lord, they serve Jesus, they believe in Him, but their consciences are still just not comfortable to, to, to enjoy something that was ever in the presence of an idol. They're very vulnerable to the evil of the culture around them. And though, even though eating food offered to an idol is, is not wrong, they feel like it is wrong because of how they used to eat meat as being offered to an idol. There are some who are not comfortable eating. And so for them to eat is to go against their current place of conviction. That, that's what he's saying here. Food is just food. And a mature understanding of who God is frees us to, to live free from fear about whether it is offered to an idol or not. But then, but then look at what he says next in verse nine. He says, take care. That's a warning. Take care that this right of yours, this perspective of yours, this knowledge of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple because you want to befriend your neighbor or go to that social event, even as a Christian, he will be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. But Paul says that even if, even though we have freedom to eat, we need to be careful Because how we choose to eat or how we choose to exercise our Christian liberties might tempt those who do not feel that same freedom to do those things. What Paul is saying is that having a right to do something as a Christian is not the only thing that a Christian man or woman is to consider before they do that thing. Having a right to do it is not the only matter at hand. No, we must also consider how our actions, how doing that thing may or may not affect a brother or sister who sees us doing that thing. And so listen, I do not believe that as Christians we should be constantly controlled by other people's convictions that we do not share. When when Paul, later in verse 13, says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I do not think that he's setting a mandate for the church that our actions are always to be determined by what other people's convictions may or may not be. If that was the case, then none of us would be able to do much of anything because all of our convictions are different about just about everything. But what Paul is saying is that, that we should be willing Our heart of love should be willing to go without in order to care for those. What he's saying is that we must consider our brothers and sisters in Christ and we must not flaunt our rights. We must be willing at times to even lay down our rights. That's what we're going to see next week. We must be considerate of others. We should be willing to never eat meat again or never do anything again if it means greater love for God's people. It's not a mandate, but it should be the posture of our hearts. Why? Because there is a legitimate danger to others if we are careless in all of this. Look at what it says. It says, so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. That's a terrifying verse. Paul is saying that just because you have freedom in Christ to do something does not mean that you need to do that thing. In fact, you should always ask, how will my doing of this thing affect my brothers and sisters in Christ? If I do it carelessly, if I do it publicly, might my brother or sister in Christ who does not yet share my freedom or conviction about this thing feel condemned or judged by me? Will they feel peer pressure to participate in it with me? If so, if they go against their conscience before God wherever it is at this point in their walk, well then for them it is sin and we've led them there. So by our knowledge, by our freedom, this weak person is destroyed. And look look at what Paul says. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you actually sin against Christ. To be indifferent to the differing convictions of others in the church through your actions, to live in a way that makes them feel as if you are indifferent to them or that you're flaunting your perspective over or against them is to actually sin against Jesus himself who died for that brother or sister. Christian, let that sober you this morning. 
How we live our freed, out our freedom in Christ is a matter of holiness and a matter of obedience before the Lord. Don't be careless about how you exercise your freedom. Take care. Your actions, your words, how you post on social media, how, how it affects those in the church is a matter of obedience and personal holiness before the Lord. We don't, we don't need to be enslaved by other people's perspectives. That we live for God and enjoy the freedom that we can, but part of our love for God is demonstrated by our care for other people who are in different places than we are. And so, maybe that person has a different conviction about their schooling choices. Maybe they have a different perspective on the pandemic. Maybe they are more conservative or more liberal than you are. How do you relate to them? Do you say, wow, what an ignorant and immature perspective that is? Don't they know that God is bigger than that? Why don't they have a more biblical conviction about that thing like I do? That doesn't make sense to me. And so let me just loudly celebrate and state where I am over and against them. Or by God's grace, do you say, oh my, this person does not share the same perspective as I do. Let me be gentle towards them. Let me pursue the unity of chapters one to four with them. There are probably really legitimate reasons for why they feel the way that they do and believe the way that they believe. Let me love them. Let me even honor them for being a person of conviction, even when the conviction is different than my own. Let me celebrate that which I do agree with in them and be patient and gentle and forbearing with that which I disagree with. Friends, this next section of 1 Corinthians is, is very exciting. It's all about how to love others who are different from us. In a world that says that whatever our rights are, whatever our perspectives are, whatever we believe to be true and important, the world says die on those hills because it's your right. Let's demand that others acknowledge our position and accept it rather than celebrating God's love for us when you and I were unlovable. His love that met us when we thought very differently than him. Rather than allowing his great love to now compel us towards a greater humility, patience, and gentleness, and forbearance to those all around us within the church and outside of the church, even as we stand in the truth of the gospel. May God teach us through this next section Redeemer Fellowship, to live loving lives even in differences that we hold. Amen. Let's pray.